Heavenly Father, thank You that we have another day which we can learn some more valuable lessons on how to be faithful stewards of all that You've placed in our hands. Thank You for Your servant who's been sharing with us. And I pray that You would help Jim to have the clarity of thought, to, to share those things that, that we need to hear, and then that You would give us through the Holy Spirit's power the strength to apply those things to our lives. So bless us during this time, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Um, just to kind of pick up with what Elder, uh, Elder Nephew was talking about, again, there's a lot of information. Some of the stuff is going to be relevant and valuable to some of you. Other information is going to be relevant and valuable to others. The handout that we keep giving you which is, and I've got the color copy here, this financial planning workbook. Again, if you turn it over on the back side, the last page is where it says ideas. What I want you guys to do is not worry that you're taking back and trying to incorporate every single idea that was talked about here. But I, what I do want you to think about is there are one or two things each day that are relevant to you that you think you can incorporate, and especially as you get back home, Take a look at that list and say, okay, what are the top two or three things that I can start doing right now? All right? This is a process. You're not going to get back, and you're not going to do everything Sunday morning. But you do need to start thinking about what were the most important things to your own particular uh, situation. Um, for those of you that are new here today, and also for the benefit of the folks that are going to be listening to this on, uh, on CD or DVD, whatever it might be, just a kind of a quick explanation again about the, the basis of the seminar. You see it up on the screen, Managing Money for the Long Run, an Iron Man's Guide to Financial Prosperity. We've talked a little bit about this, and Iron Man is considered uh, by many people to be the most difficult one-day endurance event in the world. It's a 2.4-mile swim, followed by a 112-mile bike ride, and when you're all done with that, the only thing between you and the finish line is a 26.2-mile run or a full marathon. It took me a little more. The average is 13 hours, and I was on the I was on the north end of that. Okay. So now I am doing it this fall, and my goal is to be under 13 hours. What, what's the record? The record, uh, the fastest is uh, I think just over eight hours. Okay, so imagine. Can you use horses? Yeah, imagine <laughs> swimming and then biking and then running a marathon in like uh, two hours and 45 minutes. That's what these guys are doing. It's it's it is so far beyond. The cutoff time is 17 hours. So there's a lot of people that go and they're not done at 17. But uh, the average is probably right around 13 hours. Um, and of course, I handicap myself. I say, all right, I'm you know, 20 years older than the average person. Therefore, I get an extra 20% time, right? So that, that way I, you know, I can still justify. But no, I, I, hope to be, I hope to be a little bit faster this year. So great, great question. But the idea for all of this is the things, I'm just a normal everyday guy. Um, there's nothing unique or special about me any more than anyone else, especially here in the room. And what you find when you do an Ironman, there's a lot of these elite athletes that can do really amazing things. But most of them, a lot of the people out there are people just like you and I who have said, hey, I want to do this. And the things that got us, meaning them and myself, to the starting line and to the finish line are the same principles that we're applying here. And it starts, again, as, uh, as Elder Nephew was saying, it starts with a mindset that says, you know what, I can do this. Because the greatest detriment to our financial success 
And the greatest detriment that keeps people from trying something like this is that I can't do that. So we have to get past that. So I'm going to talk for a couple minutes and just recap what we've been learning here so far uh, this week. Number one, we started on Monday talking about it's the right mi mindset. If you think you can or you think you can't, you are right. So we can't go into financial management with this idea, I can't do that. I'm not good at that. We can all be good at it. Maybe we're not going to be Rockefellers, multi-billionaires. That's not the goal, but we can all be financially successful. We also talked about the fact that money is the most tangible expression of our current spiritual condition. In other words, if we want to know where we're at spiritually, take a look at what we're doing with our money. That's the most tangible expression of our relationship with God. And then we spent quite a bit of time, guard your own palace to keep your goods in peace. That's a biblical concept. We talked about cybersecurity, the importance of guarding the assets and the, the wealth that God has given to us. On Tuesday, we talked about a spending plan or budgeting. Um, the concept, if you fail to plan, plan to fail. We've got to go through the process. But the process of budgeting or creating a spending plan is more than just putting numbers on a piece of paper and feeling like our money is in jail. The idea is that by doing that process, we've planted into our subconscious the seeds for success. And so whatever we plant in our subconscious mind and nourish with repetition and emotion will one day become reality. Let's put the right stuff in our subconscious brain. Uh, the right budget or spending plan gives you freedom to spend. And then we talk specifically, God doesn't need our money. Part of our spending plan needs to include tithe and our free will offering. But God doesn't need it. He's asking us to return our tithes and offerings because he knows that we need that experience of giving. Uh, yesterday, we talked about debt. The idea that uh, the biblical principle um, that Paul talked about in Hebrews is that uh, um, therefore run with endurance the race, getting rid of all the weight that encumbers us and the sin that, that entangles us. And so when you're running a race or you're biking, the issue of weight, not just our own weight, although that's part of it, but the weight of our equipment. If you can shed a couple ounces off of your bike, um, a couple ounces off of your shoes, whatever it might be, you will find yourself running faster, biking faster. So the idea was if we want to get through the financial situation of our life quicker and faster, let's get rid of the weight that's holding us back. In most cases, that weight is debt. So how do we get rid of debt? The Bible says that debt is not prohibited, but it should be avoided. Uh, be very, very, very wary of being a personal guarantor of someone else's debt. Uh, we use the snowball method to pay off debt, where we start with the smallest debt that we have, and we pay that off as quickly as possible. And whatever money that we are spending on that debt, we now roll over into the next smallest debt. And over time, we can pay off our debt much faster that way. Uh, and then use insurance appropriately to avoid financial disasters that often lead into debt. Um, today, we're going to be talking about going further on less effort, increasing your efficiency by making investments work for you. But before we do that, I want to take just a minute or a couple minutes and talk about reverse mortgages because that was a question yesterday. Uh, are they a scam? Do they work? Um, I should have answered the question generally and then more specifically today. Uh, reverse mortgages are not a scam but they would be considered a financial opportunity of last resort. Does that make sense? Okay, the fact that they're not a scam doesn't mean that they're beneficial in most cases. And here how, here's how it works. Um, let's say that you have... Oh, I'm sorry. I need a different piece of chalk. That's just... That's like fingernails. Um, 
So let's say, let's say this is the value of your home and it's 250000 And let's say that you currently have a mortgage of 50000 So your mortgage is 50000 house is worth 250000 How much equity do you have? How much of that home do you own? You've got 200000 Now, if you've got that kind of equity, you could borrow against that. You could take out another, a second mortgage for part of it. You could refinance and maybe you know, take out, uh, let's say, 200000 and just have 50000 in equity. You can get money out as a loan and use your house for collateral. A traditional loan, a mortgage, whether it's a home equity line of credit or a mortgage, whatever, you take out the money and then you pay interest, right? And so you're paying that back and slowly that debt gets less and less and less and less and less. What a reverse mortgage does is it says, okay, I'm going to tap into this. I'm going to put the line maybe right here, say 175000 The reverse mortgage says, all right, we're going to take out $170,000, 175, and what we're going to do is we're going to pay off that 50000 so we're actually going to give you $125,000, all right? But that $175,000 loan that essentially you've taken, you don't have to pay back. There's no monthly payments for that. There's no annual payments. So in most cases, if you have a loan, let's say that's the loan amount, and you're making payments, what's happening? It's slowly getting less, right? All right, if you're not making payments, what happens? It's slowly going up. And so the companies that do this say, number one, you have to be at least 62 for you to do that. And the problem comes in not so much because that's going up, because the idea is they say it, it'll keep going up, keep going up, keep, you, you never have to pay it off until you die. Or actually, there's a couple of contingencies. Most people think, okay, when I die, um, and maybe now it's up to here, and I die... Now, when I die, the, uh, the mortgage company or the reverse mortgage company sells the house. They get their money back, and whatever's left, your heirs get back. So it's possible that your beneficiaries would get a little bit of money. The challenge is this. Number one, when you die, or actually, two things. Let me start over. When you take it out, this $175,000, first of all, they're going to take out their fees, which could be five dollars to $10,000. So it's expensive. There's a front-end load to that. Number two, the interest rates can be somewhat high, so that, that um, debt accumulates fairly quickly. And number three, when you die and they sell it, they're the ones controlling the process. All right. So if a house goes on the market and gets sold, their, their goal is they just want to get their money out. They don't really care how much your heirs make. Now, it is possible for this have, to have gone up, 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 because you live to 110 and there's a problem. Now, the good news is that there's a government agency that backs this that says, all right, um, if this is what you sold it for and this is what the debt was, uh, your beneficiaries, your heirs don't have to worry about it. They will cover that. So when they talk about, the, hey, this is government insured or backed or whatever, that's the backing. The backing is for the company, not for you. Does that make sense? You got a question? You can't write the interest off. Oh man, that's a great question. Yeah, but but here's the thing: you're not paying the interest. So I don't. I'm going to guess not, especially if a home equity line of credit. There's you're paying the interest. 
you're not getting the deduction in this case since you're not even paying it. I don't think so. We can look at it, but but I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. The other challenge that you run into is this: <clears throat> if you have to be residing in the home, so if you decide to move or leave, that triggers the mortgage company saying, "All right, the home has to be sold." If you go into a nursing facility for more than 12 months, that triggers the same thing. So you're you could be in a nursing home. Your spouse could be living in the home. The uh, 366th day, the uh, reverse mortgage company says, "That's it. We're selling the house because we you, you've uh, you've not fulfilled the terms of the agreement." So what? It's not so much that this is a bad plan in terms of a scheme or illegal. It's that there's a number of variables that this can work well in a perfect situation. But most people don't have a perfect ideal situation. And so the ramifications ends up being very expensive and you lose control of, of an asset. So does that help answer the question? Okay, so again, yeah, when you see it on TV, it's, it's not illegal, but I would tell for all of us here, this is probably the last place you wanna go uh, in retirement to get money out. All right. Having said that, let's jump in then to the idea of investing. And I want to start again with a principle. We're going to go, relate it back to uh, exercise, uh, to, to an Ironman. Increasing swimming efficiency. There's something really interesting about swimming uh, when it comes to uh, distance swimming. First of all, 75% of the adults in the United States cannot swim from one end to the other end of a 25-yard pool, okay? Now you think about that, and I'm, by the way, okay, I'm gonna back up. Um, five years ago, five years ago, uh, I ran for the first time a 10K here at camp meeting. When I was done, a friend of mine said, you gotta do a triathlon, I had never done one. They're so easy, you know, you swim 500 yards, you bike 12 or 13 miles, and you run a 5K, all right, I'll do it. The first time I got in the pool, and this is five years ago, I almost couldn't make it from one end of the pool to the other. So when I say 75% of Americans can't, I used to be in that category. All right. The challenge is this. You think about that. It can't be, it cannot be a energy or a fitness perspective because you're talking about uh, walking 100 strides. How many of you here can walk 100 strides? All of us can. Pretty much all of us can. All right. So it, that's not the issue. The problem is we don't know how to get through the water. When we, when we run or when we bike, about 60% of our energy goes into forward motion. You wanna know how much of our energy goes into forward motion when we're swimming on average? 3%, 3%, all right? Water is a thousand times more dense than air. So we can be running or biking or whatever, and you know a lot of our energy is going into that motion. When we get in the water, most of our energy, to be honest, is that we're afraid we're going to drown. Okay, and we've also been taught things like, okay, you know, you you grab the you're just you're pulling yourself through the water and you're kicking as hard as you can to propel yourself, because water is so dense. There's a point at which we cannot go any faster because of the density of the water. Um, now, the really elite swimmers, Michael Phelps, folks like that, uh, they actually, they're all the way up to 10%. 10% of their energy goes into forward motion. You want to know what a dolphin is? 80%. Okay, do you think we're at a little disadvantage? 
<laughs> I think so. By the way, did anyone see that it turned out to be a simulation? Michael Phelps versus the shark. It was Shark Week. Um, and so they did, it was, they hyped it up. It was actually much less. But, but the reality is there's no way that a human being with our body design, our bodies were not designed to go through water. Okay? Sharks, dolphins, all that, they were designed to go through water. But the point is, as inefficient as we are, we could double our energy, okay? We could work twice as hard to get through the water, and we would only increase our speed very minimally. Or what we can do is we could take some of our energy and we say, I'm going to take 5% of my energy, and I'm going to devote that energy to becoming more efficient, to getting my body so that it can go through the water quicker and easier. And there's some very specific techniques of which I'm not terribly good at, but I do know them, that can get your efficiency up. And so I think right now, if I, re I read the description, I'm probably at maybe 6%. All right, I'm a little better than, than the average person, but I'm certainly not in that elite category. But it makes a huge difference. So the question is, do we want to spend 5% energy that can give us an extra 2 or 3% through the water, which is actually doubling our speed, is it not? We can do that, or we can spend an extra, you know, 85% energy, you know, just paddling through the water. So the idea is, how can we get efficient? How can I spend a little bit of energy and get a lot of output? And we want to apply that same principle in investing. How can we take what we have, and instead of having to work harder for more money, to make our money work for us? And that's the whole concept of investing. So we want to talk about this. This is a little hard to see on the screen, so I'm going to read it. I'm going to turn the lights off first. Um, is that too dark? Yeah, let's leave the back ones on. All right, so we've got the benefit of saving and investing early. And we're going to start with Nervous Nora. This is Nervous Nora right here. You can see it's the yellow line. Nora started investing at age 25. She invested at age 65. Um, and she put it all in cash, earning 2%, which, by the way, would be a pretty good return today, would it not? All right. So between that time, her money went from zero to $308,000. 35% of that money was earnings. 65% is what she put in. All right. So she made some money. That was good. Uh, you have some other point, uh, persons here. You've got Quitter Quincy. He invested from age 25 to 35, but he put it where he's making 6%. And we can see him uh, just right here. Didn't make a whole lot, but then it grew. He has 401,000. 84% of the money that's in that account came from earnings, not from his deposits. All right, we've got uh, late Lila, who started at age 35. Um, by the way, this is $5,000 a year. I should have put that in there. So you're putting in $5,000 a year. Started at age 35 over the, until age 65, 401,000, excuse me, 419,000, 64% came from earnings. That means only 36% was her own money. Then you've got consistent Chloe invests from age 25 to 65, earning 6% per year, uh, starting at zero, ends up with $820,000. Um, 76% of that comes from earnings. That's the idea that we're talking about. We talk about saving, and, and one of the ways to save more is to say, I'm going to put more into savings, I'm going to put more into savings, I'm going to put more into savings. We can do that, but only to a certain point. And at a certain point, what we want is those investments now to be working for us 
at the most efficient way possible. And we're going to talk about some ideas that help us to do that the right way. Does this make sense to everyone? You understand the concept? All right, let's keep going on. We talked yesterday about this idea that we have to plan on living a long time. Uh, the fact that we've gotten to age 65, for those of you in the room that have, uh, for those of us that are approaching that, that means that our life expectancy is going to be longer than individuals who are, are just born today. All right. If you get to age 75, your life expectancy is up. If you make it to age 95, you have a life expectancy of several more years, even though average life expectancy in the U.S. is probably closer to 80. The concept is the longer you live, the longer you live. And so we have to account for the fact that we're going to be living probably a long time, especially again, as we've discussed, um, studies show mathematically that Adventists have a higher life expectancy than the general population. So these are just general population numbers. And if we believe that the health message in particular has given us the advantage of better health and, and more longevity, we need to be planning to have a number of years through retirement. So the key to be successful investing isn't predicting the future, which often people think it is. It's learning from the past and understanding the present. Now, one of the things I'm going to point out to you, this is what we call uh, an investment periodic chart. You can see there's different colors. Um, you can probably guess that the purple here uh, is consistent. Whatever that is, it, it, it's consistent. This is cash. The idea is we're going to take a look at a number of different asset classes that you can invest in and how they do year to year from 2003 up through the end of 2017. And you can see they're kind of all over the chart, right? There's not a consistent best investment. There's not necessarily a consistent worst investment, although cash does seem to be near the bottom most of the time, and that would be uh, logical. But the idea is we can't predict what the best investment's going to be this year or next year. That's almost impossible. We can take a look at trends and say there's a good, there's a good possibility that this or that may happen, but we can't control fiscal policy. We can't control geopolitical events. We can't control what's happening on the international dynamics uh, with currency exchanges and stuff. Um, so what we do see from this is a couple of things. Number one, there's a lot of variability. But number two, we're going to call it, this is called an asset allocation. This is where you're about 60% in, in uh, more risky investment stocks, about 40% in less riskier bonds. And you see that that tends to follow a fairly middle-of-the-road process. And I want to encourage us to think about our investments within the context of something called diversification. All right? Anyone here want to try to um, identify what diversification is? Yes? Not putting all your eggs in one basket. That's exactly right. And what's the benefit of that? Exactly. Exactly. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, one of those categories up on the screen is emerging markets. That's why, where you're investing in small countries, uh, companies in small countries like Brazil or Thailand, uh, something like that. Uh, you may be up 50, 60 percent one year, and you could be down uh, 50 or 60 percent the next year. That's a lot of, of, of variability. Am I right? And by the way, one of the best ways to make money in investing is to not lose. All right. <laughs> so, and, and here's why it is mathematically. If you have an investment and you lose 20% in one year, how much do you have left? You have 80% left. How much do you have to make to get back up to 
No, you don't have to make, you have to make 25 because you only have 80% left. So 20% is 25% of the 80. And I'll, I'll explain that real quick because it's an important concept. Again, you started with 100% and you went down to 80%. So you, let's say you had $1,000 and now you have $800. In order to get back up to $1,000, how much does that have to grow? That has to grow a quarter of it or 25% of it. So you lose 20% 20, 20 but you have to gain 25 back to just be to zero. So that's, that's the issue, that's how the math works. Now it's the same dollar amount. You lost $200, you have to gain back $200, but the rate of return has to be higher. So it's very important for us as we're talking about investments, not only to look at how much can we make, but how do we avoid the losses. And the concept for that is something, uh, it's a fairly basic concept that takes a look at the idea of um, your return versus risk. Okay? Everyone recognizes that this is a graph. Okay, so you have, you have uh, lines, I, I'm not gonna actually draw it as a graph paper, you know, you can plot an investment, just about any investment can be plotted on this, on this chart. All of us, if we're really, really honest, where do we want to be? We want to be right there, right? Okay, I want the bank account that's FDIC insured that's paying me 20% a year. All right? I mean, seriously, that's what we want, isn't it? All right. Does it exist? No, that's a unicorn. You know what a unicorn is? It's something that everyone's looking for, but we never find, all right? So that's not there. What we want to do is be realistic and realize that return in the investment world is compensation for risk that we've taken. And so in general, what we're going to find is, and it's not exactly like this, but for, for the illustration, investments you know, kind of plot out where you can draw an imaginary line. The more risk you take, the higher return. The more return you want, the more risk you have to be willing to take, all right? So how do we find a way to shift this way and upward at the same time? And the way we do that is through diversification. Um, and we do that, I'm gonna throw out some pretty big terms. Today's a little bit more uh, high-powered, I guess we would say. It's called non-correlated assets. And the idea is, Again, if you have an investment that's doing this, okay, that's somewhat volatile, but what if you had an investment that did exactly the opposite? So when this was go going up, you know, it went down a little bit, went down a little bit, okay? So it's tracking the opposite. What you find is that the average is much more stable. So when we take a look at how do we reduce risk but increase return, what we want to look for is non-correlated assets. And by the way, you guys don't have to figure that out. That's not your job as the average investor. That's the job of an investment professional is, is to make sure that you're putting it together. But here's what will take place if it's done right. Um, actually, I should have started with it. We'll get back to the stocks versus bonds. Let's start with bonds. Bonds are fairly conservative. You know, you can buy a, a U.S. Treasury, 10-year U.S. Treasury uh, note or bond today paying 2.91%. We know that in 10 years, the government's gonna give us all our money back, we get our 3% return every year, we're all happy, all right? 
We can invest in stocks that are out here that have much more volatility. All right? What we find is that we combine, and typically, historically, stocks and bonds have had some negative correlation. So when one's up, the other's down. All right? When we put it together, the line between this two is not a straight line. Because we're, we're looking at that saying, hey, I think 60-40, you know, we're probably somewhere right there. All right? The way this works, if it's done efficiently, is this line actually grows like that. All right. When we start adding a, an aggressive or, or more risky type of investment to a very conservative portfolio, if it's done right, we actually have moved that risk less and we're getting a higher return. And so when, we, when I talk to clients, because this is my job, is portfolio management. The important thing is helping people identify their risk. That's the important thing for you guys. How much risk can you take? I heard a great example of that. What is your uncle point? What's the point at which you, you say, uncle, I don't want to be part of this anymore? And for some people, it's right here. For some people, it's here or here or here or way out there. There is no wrong place except for this. All right? And why is that? The reason is, is because for that much risk that we took, we could have gotten that much more return. Or if that was the return we wanted, we could have done it with less risk. So the idea is diversification, if done right, the idea of diversification is it can help us lower our risk and get a higher return. All right? Hopefully this was the most difficult academic part of today. But this is a really important concept because most of the time people are focused on how much money do I want to make and they don't realize the risk. And what happens is when they go through something where the markets are going down and they're losing money, they realize that they do have an uncle point and they're out. And I'll explain why that's a real problem here in just a couple minutes. So does that make sense to everyone? We've got a few heads nodding. A lot, a lot of people are like, I have no idea what you just talked about. <laughs> um, so let me do this, though. Let me explain uh, even uh, another basic concept. Because when it comes to investing, we really have two options, two main options. We have something called a loan. And then we have own. Okay. When we're investing, um, most large corporations uh, don't go to a bank to get a loan. Okay. They come to us as an investor. Gov federal government does that. They say, uh, if you give me $10,000, I will pay you 3% interest for the next 10 years. I'll pay you that interest every, every six months. It's a lot like a CD. Do most people here understand the concept of certificate of deposit? You give your money to the bank, the bank pays you interest, and three or five years from now, you get all your money back. Okay? We haven't, we're not investing in the bank. All right? In a sense, we have loaned the bank our money. All right? They are borrowing it from us. They are paying us interest. And at some point, they're going to give us all our money back. Uh, a bond is exactly the same thing. So if you want a, a, a GE 10-year bond, it's basically us loaning money to GE. If you want a 30-year treasury bond, that's basically us loaning our money to the federal government. That is one very specific way to invest. Fairly conservative, and I won't go through all the, the ways that you can have fluctuation in that, but it, it can happen. The other way to make money is to own something. All right? How many of you here 
even if you have a mortgage, how many of you here own a home? All right, here's the question. If the price of that home goes up and you sell it, who gets to keep the money? We do, right? The price or value of that home goes down and you have to sell it, who eats the loss? We do, all right? Since we're the owner, we have value in that home. It's called equity, all right? This type, this methodology of investing is the same as stocks, but instead of owning a piece of property or a home, we own a company or a part of a company. At the very simplest level, you can own a small company yourself. At the very largest level, you may be one of millions of people. You get a little piece of paper. When you own your home, by the way, you get a little piece of paper. It's called a title. It represents your ownership. With a stock or a company, you get a little piece of paper, and it's called a stock certificate, and it represents your ownership in the company. Those are the really, in a generic sense, that's the only two ways that we have to make money. Um, and we're not going to talk about gambling and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but anyway, that's, that's the concept. So the idea is how do we take we call them bonds again here and stocks. And again, putting those together in such a way that we can get 6% return instead of the 2% that we're getting at the bank. Let's take a breather. That was a lot. What questions do you guys have? And if your question is, Jim, let's go all the way back to the beginning, let's do that, because I don't want to lose you guys when you're going through this process. It is not too risky, all right? That was a great question. Is 75% stock too risky? There is kind of a rule of thumb, which is sometimes applies, but doesn't always have to, and that is you take your age, all right, um, you take the number 100 and you subtract your age and whatever number is left, that should be in stocks. So someone that's 50 years old, take 100 minus 50, that means 50% should be in stocks. That means that at 65, it should be just 35% in stocks. I don't think that's a great rule of thumb, and here's why. It, it works in a lot of cases, but the day you retire, and let's say it's age 65, the day you retire, how many of you here will spend every bit of money that you have in your retirement account? Okay. Most of us won't spend it all that day. Most of us, have, hopefully, we've saved and we'll be using it through the next 15, 20 years. The challenge with stocks um, is that the good news is over time they make more money, historically. The bad news is they have this tendency to go up and down. All right. So let's say that you retired there at a low point. And the worry is, oh, the market's down, I've got to retire this month. All right. If you still have another 15 or 20 years, you have time to ride through those cycles, so it's not a big deal. Now, yeah, you're going to start taking some money out. You may want to be a little more conservative at 65 than you are today. But a lot of times people think they have to move all their money into something very conservative the day they retire, and that's, I don't think that's true. It can be in some cases, but it, that's not a blanket statement. So, very good question. Uh, there are people in their 60s and 70s that still want to be 90, 100% in stocks. There are people in their 20s and 30s that say, I want to be like 10% in stocks. I just, I can't handle it. Um, you're going to have more volatility. There's no question about that. And I think that you, you may, at 100%, you may be missing some diversification. Uh, but there's nothing that says you need to be down to 50 or 20 or, I mean, 80, 90% you're getting fairly diversified. Here's the interesting thing. Again, we're getting into, we're deep in the weeds here. 
a 60-40 blend, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, 97% of the risk is still in stocks. So 97% of my risk is in stocks or 100% of my risk is in stocks. So going from 60 to 100, you're adding some risk, but not, not as much as what people think. So, yeah. Um, we'll talk, let's talk afterwards a minute. Um, let's go on to the next concept then. Yes, yes. A, a good financial advisor, their role is to help understand exactly where you're at here, and if they haven't gone through that process, they're not doing the right job. Because the, the truth is, there aren't necessarily nearly as many bad investments in the, the marketplace as what you would think. The issue is much more that it's not appropriate for your situation. So it's a mismatch. It's not a bad investment, but it's a mismatch. And so the idea is, let's understand where the client needs to be, first of all, and then let's make sure that we're, we've got this and not this through a really efficient portfolio. And so good portfolio design helps with that. Sorry, yeah, Let, let's start with the last one because I've heard this before. People, um, at least a few months ago, oh, the market's at an all-time high. I don't want to get in, all right? If you put money in a savings account and you got, you got compounded interest every day, does that make sense? You're not making a whole lot, but every day you're making a little bit more. Every single day you would be at an all-time high, would you not? Okay. So the idea of being at an all-time high in and of itself is not bad. The question is, are you at an all-time high and it's unsustainable? All right. Um, again, I know I'm throwing a lot at you guys. Right now, the market is valued. Uh, the market... Uh, in general, values itself compared to earnings. Companies earn money. How much is the price of the stock compared to how much they're going to earn this year? So it's called the P.E. ratio. Right now, I think it's right around 17 times um, forward earnings. Okay, So that's, they, that's one way of measuring it. Um, historically, the average is about 16.5 times. So is it overvalued? Um, According to some matrices or methods, maybe a little. Back in 2000, it was valued at, I think, uh, 28 times. All right? That's pretty expensive. Uh, 16, 17 times, I don't think that's, I don't think we're really overvalued. Even though we're near all-time highs, we're not overvalued. The problem is, though, that markets are not always rational. Does that make sense? Uh, markets can go from 17 to 28, and it really doesn't make sense why it's, it's going there, and it can go from 17 down to 14, and you're like, all the fundamentals are in place. Why is it doing that? Well, it's not always rational, so I can't predict what it's going to do, but I can tell you that if you look at the long-term averages, we're not really that overvalued. It's interesting. If you, if you want to know what is overvalued, is treasury bonds. If you use some of the same matrices, treasury bonds are trading at approximately 38 times earnings as a bond. So that's the, uh, the bond market. There's much more concern about the bubble in the bond market than the stock market. So, so going back to your point, is it okay to be more in stocks? In some ways, yes. The challenge is if in 2020 there's a recession and the markets drop you know, 10, 20%, can you say, I don't know what to do? Or, you know what? That's just a paper loss. No problem. Keep going. If you can do the second, then it's, it's not an issue. Growth stocks, yes. Um, stocks, there's, there's two ways to make money in stocks. Number one is the price of the stock was $10, 
and the next year, the price of the stock is $12. Did you just make money? Yes, you did. You went from $10 to $12. You just made 20%. Um, if the price goes from $10 to $8, what happened? You just lost money. But in general, over time, two-thirds of the time, the average stock market goes up in value in a, in a one-year time period. So there's something called price appreciation. I know none of you can read that. Even I can't. But that's one way to make money, price appreciation. The other one is the company says, okay, our stock is, is at $10, but we're profitable, and every year we're going to pay out a dividend. And because we own the company, we're the owners, the investors, we get that dividend. And it could be, let's say, 2%. So you could have a company that every year is paying you a dividend of 2%. You put your $10,000 in, whether the price goes up or down, you're going to make 2% every year as a dividend. It's not interest, because it's not a loan, but it's, it's a return of earnings to you as the owner. And so uh, income stocks are often an attractive place to be because you have the benefit of the income plus the potential price appreciation. And many times as people get into retirement, that's a good place to go uh, as part of the portfolio. And we take a look at that. There's some real value in that type. But again, it, we typically look at it in conjunction with a full portfolio of how it's invested. So, help answer the question? All right. What I want to focus on uh, is as much the emotional part of investing. This is very theoretical. Yes. Yep. And that's the challenge. Um, for most of us, these are hard concepts. These are not easy things. And not only that, we're going to talk about it. It becomes scary. All right. We can talk about, oh, that's a lot of work to pay off my debt and to come up with a budget. Those are, that's hard work. But there's something about investments that's actually scary. And I relate that if we, if we go back to this whole idea of this a triathlon, it's a lot of work to run. It's a lot of work to bike. But typically, those aren't scary. It's scary to get in the water. All right? I'll be honest with you. In fact, um, even now, if I'm swimming a long distance, if I start to get a little short of breath, I have to do everything I can not to go into panic mode. Okay? And panic attacks are bad in the water. Let's just be serious. You can't get out of the water fast enough. That's, I think, how people feel about investing. When things start going bad, it's a full-blown panic attack. And what's going to happen? So we have to try to find a way to help take the emotion out of it. Take a deep breath. Get back in line. You got a question? There is. And that, that impacts more of taxes. Uh, but, but that is a part of it. In other words, if you have an investment that goes from 10 to 12, that's a gain. Have you sold it? No, it's an unrealized gain. So in some ways, it's still on paper. Uh, the government doesn't tax you because you haven't taken it out. But if, if you go from 10 to 12 and then you sell it, have you locked in your gain? Yes, you have. It can't go back down to 8. But then that becomes a realized gain, and now the government taxes you. Uh, the longer you can go between making it an unrealized to realize, the more money you can make, typically over time. We'll talk a little bit about that power of compounding. I think we're going to get to that. Uh, we're getting a little short on time. But yeah, that's a good point. There's a difference between unrealized and realized gains. So, 
Uh, yes, we'll have a couple questions here, and then I want to get back to this uh, dollar cost averaging. Yeah, that's a tough one, and here's why. Um, uh, I would still say that in, in the long run, being debt-free, if you have enough time, being debt-free is, is, I think is the, the ultimate. Because um, here's a couple things. I think you can make more money if you, if you have a, a debt that you're paying 4% interest, and I think the markets are going to go up 7 It's more advantageous to put your money into the markets and let it grow. But I can't guarantee the markets are going to go up 7% every year. I can guarantee that if I'm paying off that debt, I'm saving 4%. And right now, you can't get a 4% guaranteed bond or, or CD. We might be able to soon. There's also the idea that if something bad happens, um, I'm out of a job, I lose my income, whatever, you're debt-free, a lot less stress. So there's a comfort factor. Having said that, you can't avoid the issue entirely of saving for retirement or whatever, because if you wait until you're 60, you don't have enough time, exactly. And so that's where you have to, the balance is going to be different for everyone. Um, that's why I say if, if you have an opportunity to save and you can get a match, do that all day long while you're paying off the debt. But do not miss the opportunity for that, those matching dollars. That's a great place to start. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about we're to, uh, avoid emotional biases by sticking to a plan in good times and bad. So we've talked about the fact there's volatility. Markets go up and down. That can scare us. But here's the advantage if we're not looking just at the value of our account, but we're looking at continuing to put money in. In January, stock price was $10. We put $100 in, we, we uh, purchased 10 shares, right? That's just math. In February, oh, the market dropped, crashed. We went down 30%. Now it's only $7. We still put our $100 in. We bought 14 shares. Okay, so we bought more, same amount of money, but we bought more units when the price went down. In March, it went down again. Now it's down to six. We spent our $100. We got almost 17 shares. April, it starts going back up to eight. $100, we got 12.5. In May, back up to $9 a share. We bought 11 shares. If you look at the bottom here, the share price on average was $8. Okay, we invested $500. We have 64.6 shares. Let's call it 65. Anyone want to do the math on 65 shares times 9? 581. How much did we put in? 500. How can that be? Because we're still lower than when we started. All right? Because we're buying more when it's at a lower price. We're buying a little less at the higher price. And that's the value. And for, for most of you here, if you're doing a retirement plan, a 401k, something like that, Every paycheck, the money's going in. That is the single best way to invest, is very systematically. Um, some people say, hey, on my IRA, should just, just wait till the end of the year. You can do that, but you avoid this opportunity of making money when the, just because the markets are volatile. And I talked about that yesterday. There is a way that when markets are going up and down that you can still make money, even if it doesn't go up entirely. Imagine if it went back up to 10 went up to $10 a share, you would be at almost $650 versus $500 that you put in. And the market hasn't gone anywhere. So don't be afraid of the fact that the market has volatility. That can actually work in your benefit. Now, long term, we still want it higher than lower, right? You can still make a lot more money uh, that way. But even when it's volatile, it can be to our benefit to consistently, every two weeks, every month, whatever it is, 
put our money into the retirement account. Staying invested matters. It's always darkest just before dawn. And this is what's going to help explain with this. Um, anyone here heard of the S&P 500? Okay, you've heard of the Dow? Because every, every night at 6.30, oh, the Dow was up 37 points on heavy trading today. And so in the NASDAQ stock, I yes. market, Yeah, okay, so you're, you're spot on. Yeah. You're spot on. The S&P 500, um, 98, okay, so over the last 20 years, it's returned 7.2% on average. All right? So if someone got in on January 1 of 98 and was in through the end of 2017, they never touched it, they made 7.2%. If they were out of the market, they said, oh, hey, things are getting a little shaky. I'm going to just, just pull out for a little bit and sit on the sidelines for a few days. If you miss the 10, just the 10 out of 20 years, the 10 best days, your average went from 7.2 to 3.5. Okay? If you miss the 20 best days, it goes from 3.5 to 1.1. The 30 best days, you're now down 0.9%. 40 best days, you're down 2.8%. I can probably read this better on my screen. Um, the best 60 days, 50 days, you're down 4.5, and the best 60 days, down 6%. Okay? The point, and here's the point. We can't tell you when those best or worst days are. They just happen. So a lot of times we're thinking in terms of, hey, how, let's, it's going to get a little volatile. Let's maybe pull out of the market and let's get back in. Here's what I would tell you. When you're working on this, the idea is we want to find the right place that's going to be consistent over the next, we'll call it five or ten years. We don't want to be shifting all the time because it's very difficult to do that. Uh, in order to do market timing and have it work for you, you have to be right twice. You have to know when to get out, and you have to know exactly when to get back in. And most people, including those of us in the, in the, in the profession, most of us can't get it right once. All right? And that... Studies have shown that. Uh, if someone says they can tell you that, I, I'm not telling you don't believe them. I, the studies say that they won't be able to do it. They probably won't even get the first one right, and very doubtful that they'll get both of them right. So what we want to do is say, uh, Alex, we're going to have some volatility. Where are you comfortable with that volatility? And instead of making strategic changes, like, hey, let's be here, let's be there, there is a point to making tactical changes. Alex, we see that we think in the next 18 months that there's a, now a 39% chance of a recession. We're going to dial down. Yeah, I'm going to go back to this. Now we have a pie chart. These are the different investments that we have that make up your portfolio. We're going to take 1% or 2% out of this, and we're going to shift it over here. And that's our call because we think that's going to be a little bit more efficient over the next 12 to 18 months. But what we're not going to do is say, hey, let's jump from here to here and then back. And so that's the role of a financial advisor should be right, helping identify this. And then it's kind of like sailing a sailboat. You, know, you can set the sail and you can be going in a direction. If the wind shifts a little bit, okay, we, we need to make little adjustments. And you make the little adjustments, but you don't make wholesale changes. Yes? Yes, the very sometimes the very best thing you can do. The question was for those of you that are listening: when the market is uh, going through big losses, dropping rapidly, isn't the best thing to do sometimes nothing? And the answer is yes. Sometimes you have to just close your eyes and plug your nose. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, 
One of the worst things that ever happened in the investment world, I say this facetiously, is having minute-by-minute um, minute access to your account. Every day I'm going to pull it up. What's it doing? Okay, in the old days, you got a statement once a year. How many of you here, by the way, look at the value of your house every, every day? You ever check that online? What's the value of my house today? Okay, why? It's an investment, isn't it? Because we recognize it's going to go up and down, and that's not, uh, that's not important because we're not going to sell it today. Same thing with our retirement account. We can check it more than you know, once a year if we want, but the reality is we don't, we don't need to be making those kind of changes every single day, even though most of you probably have online access where you can move your investments every day for retirement. But the best thing to do is not panic. It's to say, I did the right work here, and I'm going to stick with it and invest for the long run. Uh, so if we go back here, volatility is normal. Don't let it derail you. Every year on a one-year basis, uh, studies have shown the opportunity in the stock market alone, you're going to have somewhere between 39% loss and a 47% gain. Now, usually it's much narrower than that, but that, those are kind of like the extremes. Um, you've got that for stocks, you've got that for bonds, you've got it for a balance. But you can see that over time, that's a lot of volatility, but if you keep it for five years, somewhere between a 3% loss and a 28% gain. Stock market over 10 years, 1% loss, 19% gain. Over 20 years, 7% versus 17%, if I'm reading that right. All right. So the value of, of long-term investing is what we want to do. Now, I will tell you that in most of these, they're calculating uh, like with 99% probability. And I'm just going to throw out one other term that I found really interesting. It's called the black swan theory. And that theory is that just because you've never seen a black swan doesn't mean they don't exist. All right? And the same thing happens in investing. We'll make certain assumptions at times and say, you know, there's 99% probability of this because we've never seen something else. And so there's always this idea that there's a black swan event. 2008, in some ways, was a black swan event. No one saw that coming because it was an anomaly. Um, but the point here is, again, volatility is normal. Don't let it derail you. If you see a lot of volatility one year, that's, it, it happens. But don't let that throw you off course because, as we were talking about, to jump out when the market's down doesn't give you the opportunity to be in it as the market comes back up. And a lot of times, it's going down, it's going down, it's going down, and all of a sudden you have two or three of these great days just like that. And you've, you haven't necessarily made up all of your losses, but by not being in it, you don't have the opportunity to get that 5% gain over a couple of days. Any questions on this? All right, harness the power of tax-deferred compounding. We'll talk about this uh, for a few minutes. Um, taxable versus tax-deferred. So we talked about setting your money aside, and this is something that we talked about a couple days ago as well. Um, how one of the strongest things you can do is not have to pay taxes. So you put your money in, $100,000 for a household in the 24% tax bracket. Over time, if it was taxed, that $100,000 would grow to $381,000. Uh, if it was tax deferred where you didn't have to pay taxes on that growth, it would grow to $574,000. And even after you paid the taxes, it would still be $460,000. So anytime you can put money into a a uh, investment program that defers taxes, take advantage of that. Most of the time there's a limit on how much you can do because the IRS wants some tax money. And at some point they'll probably get some of it. 
But anytime you can put money and let it grow tax deferred, you're in a much better situation. There's a great study that a firm uh, that I work closely with, 43% uh, of all returns are lost to taxes. Okay? So if there's a way to avoid taxes, we want to do that. And so things like your retirement plan, where it's tax deferred until you take it out, that's a great program. A Roth IRA, even better if we're young and we can let that grow and never have to pay taxes on the earnings. That's a powerful, powerful benefit. Uh, let me see if I had any other slides here. Okay, we already talked about this. Why aren't you signed up for the 401k? Um, we talked about the difference between the Roth and the, uh, um, the IRA. So let's do this. We've got a few more minutes left. I didn't mean to rush, uh, rush through this, but I did want to make sure that we had plenty of time for Q&A. So you had a question. I see another one popping up here. No, you can, yeah, I, I don't know all the mechanics of it, but you can gift a, uh, a retirement account directly to a charity. At least you could in the past. Now, maybe some of those tax laws have changed. And so you get the benefit of the deduction up front. There are, there are, there's a number of strategies where you can, you can do that currently um, while living. Yeah. So if, if I had, uh, if I wanted to... You can, you can do that. You can also uh, do the reverse where you, in essence, have gifted that money to the charity in advance, um, but that that uh, portfolio will still kick off an income stream to you while you're alive. Uh, so that would be a charitable remainder trust, um, as opposed to a, uh, the, the other one would be a, what's called a grantor retained trust, where the income goes to the charity, but when you die, the money goes back to your heirs. So what I think we were talking about yesterday, what, what the question was being asked was, money that's in a 401k, and you're going to withdraw $1,000 from it, you're going to lose about 25%. Yes. No way to avoid that. Uh, coming out, yes, that is correct. But the question is, can you gift it directly from the 401k to the charity? And I think you can. I think you can. But even if, even here's the thing, even if you withdraw it, and then whatever you withdrew, you gave to a charity, that, that charitable contribution is a deduction that would offset the, uh, the taxes. So in essence... You can kind of give it tax-free to the... Yes, at age 70 and a half, the IRS requires money start, starting to come out of your retirement accounts. And the idea is they don't want this tax deferral to go on indefinitely. They, want to get, they say at 70 and a half, we need to start getting paid. And so they have something at age 70 and a half that's called a required minimum distribution. Um, if any of you are in that situation... Uh, you may see things that actually writes out the word required minimum distribution, or it'll be called RMD, required minimum distribution. And then what they say is at 70 and a half, what's your life expectancy? By the way, anyone want to know, if you're 70 and a half, how long the government says you're going to live? Say so you're going to live another 24.5 years. That's, remember how I said, the longer you live, the longer you live? Your life expectancy at 70 and a half is probably uh, 95 on average, yeah, that's because what they say is at 70 and a half, you have to take one year of this out. And since there's 24.5 and you're taking one out, that equals a, right around 4%. So your required minimum distribution at 70 and a half is about 4% of your value. And they'll recalculate that every year. And they'll tell you, okay, here's how much you have to take out. And you have to take it out. 
Now, do you have to spend it? No, there's no government requirement that when you get that money, you spend it. You could turn around and put it into some other investment vehicle. You could gift it. You can do anything you want with it. But it does have to come out of the, the retirement account. Yeah, I, uh, no, I, here's what I think is going to happen. And by the way, I should be very careful. For anyone listening, I'm not making a prediction. <laughs> All right. Um, but, but here, there's, there's a lot of chatter that we're starting to hear that we could see uh, the economy slow down as we get to the end of 2019 and into 2020. The question is whether it will slow down enough to, to cause a recession or not. Uh, but one of the challenges that we have is that the economy, the economy right now is the third longest economy growth on record. All right? So if you guys, let's just take an extra, this is one of the last days. We're going to take an extra couple minutes if you guys have the time. So we've got the third longest economy, uh, growth economy in the history of, of the country. Uh, we're at, I think, 106, 107 months. There's been a couple of expansions that have been slightly longer. But most expansions, again, with a chart, you know, there's the economy drops and then it grows. And maybe it grows for X amount of time and that's how much it grows. Or... You had really rapid growth. It was a shorter time period, but it grew higher. This expansion has grown like this. Okay, So the time has been much longer than the average, but it's been very slow growth, so the total growth during that time has been less than some. So that's one of the reasons why we can have one of the longest expansions in history, and it's still going. Um, the, uh, the tax reform bill that we had last December that went through, that definitely spiked growth. So we had company, uh, earnings growth for companies. Companies were reporting earnings this year, first quarter versus last year, uh, same quarter, and they were up 25%, 28%. Huge growth. The market had a reason to really, really jump up. Um, so the economy's being juiced a little bit from that. Uh, the, the tax reform impacts us in a positive way. The problem is, and this is one of the best analogies, and I apologize to use it at a, at a Christian or a, an Adventist setting, it's kind of like, and I don't know this from experience, but I've heard, it's kind of like bringing a keg of beer to a party at 2.30 a.m., all right? It gets a lot louder and more, you know, there's a lot more fun, but the hangover's a lot worse, okay? And so that's the analogy that they used. Um, again, it was not my analogy, because I've never been there. But the reality is we're, we're bringing a lot of stimulus to the party late in the game. And it's going to make things better in the short term, but it can potentially make it a little worse. And that's where you know, the, the economy now, you know, we might see it grow you know, much more quickly, but if that's unsustainable, then it has to come back to its long-term average and maybe, maybe it drops down. So I think that there's a, a decent chance that we could see a recession in 2020. Um, I think the Federal Reserve right now is in the process of raising interest rates. And one of the reasons they do that is because when the recession comes in, they have a tool in their backpack and they can lower rates. Because that's the, the Federal Reserve is in the business of trying to keep the economy stable. And they primarily do that through short-term interest rates. And so if, if they raise rates and the economy stalls, then they can lower rates. That puts more money into the, the economic system. And there's more money in the economic system. There's more growth. And you can, uh, you know, you can kind of power your way out of it. So, I now the question is, if there's a recession, what does that do for the market? You know, if the market was trading as we talked about, if it was trading at 25 times earnings, that's a bad deal. If it's trading at 17 times earnings, I don't know. It's, I heard someone use the analogy: you, you can't get hurt very bad falling out of a basement window. 
Okay, so if the you know two story, more serious. If the if the economy is not super overheated, and the market stock market isn't, will it fall? It, it still can. That's that's where we can't really predict, and I'm not going to try to predict it. But I do think that we're going to have bond prices continue to rise over the next uh, year and a half, and then we're going to start seeing more volatility in the stock market. That part I, I'm fairly confident in saying we'll see those things. So, all right. Let's have prayer, wrap up, let you guys go. I'll, I'll go ahead and have prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. And as we've talked about, we recognize, number one, everything that we've discussed has to do with your money, the money that you've given to us, that you've entrusted to us. We want to be good steward, stewards. And as it was discussed here at the end, the most important thing is not just that we understand these concepts, which is valuable, but more importantly, that our heart is in tune with you that we are listening to the Holy Spirit, that every one of us, as we're contemplating the decisions that we need to make individually, are in tune with your decision and your guidance for our lives, that we would follow you explicitly, Lord, and do your will. And we look forward to the day when all of this will be meaningless in the sense that we look forward to eternity with you and the perfection of heaven and the joy of, of living with you forever. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.